Please turn with me again to the book of Acts. We are in the middle of chapter 15. It's the record of a real landmark for Christianity. This is a council among the apostles and elders at Jerusalem to address uh, a growing question that had arisen in the newly planted churches. Um, We'll look at some of the background in a minute, but to set up the passage I'll read today, it's the second half of this story. It's where they uh, come up with a conclusion and decide to put a a brief declaration uh, in writing to send back up to Antioch where the question originated um, and then encourage the brethren there in Antioch. Now, you'll remember what happened at Antioch. It was a church that started out in a Jewish synagogue like so many first churches, and then Gentiles started coming to faith in Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Um, Jewish believers first, and then Gentile believers. Um, Paul uh, and Barnabas went on a mission trip over into Galatia, uh, quite a bit west from where Antioch is, returned back to Antioch. Antioch had grown more. More and more Gentiles were coming to faith. Now, as a backdrop, don't forget, we're in Greece, the Greco-Roman world, and in Antioch, you have at least a couple large temples dedicated to Greek gods. And there was a religious culture among all the Greeks that paid some amount of service to the temple and its supporting ministries, you might call it, their religious practices. It was pagan. It was um, anti-Christ. And so this would be the background most of those first Greek converts would have come from. They would have been used to things sacrificed to idols, and they would be used to the temple uh, prostitution institution. It was a terrible scene, and that those early Christians were, uh, would have been used to in their life before Christ, then becoming Christians, it would have been a challenge for them to escape the connection to that culture. Now, at the same time, as these Gentiles are coming to faith in huge numbers, The Jewish believers are watching this process, and I'm sure there's joy with this, but there was wonderment about what requirements were there for these Gentiles who didn't know the Old Testament, didn't follow through the various rites and rituals that we have to follow or have had to follow. What do they do? It seems to us that they should have to come through Judaism. Um, To be really separate from the Greco-Roman false religions, they should be circumcised as Jews and then be counted in Christ. So believe in Christ And also, they need to be circumcised. This will disconnect them from Greece, connect them to the biblical religion. Now, I think at first it wasn't a wrong idea about them coming out of of the Greek culture, but they were misunderstanding altogether what the gospel was. And that's huge. That is foundational for the church going forward. Couldn't be more important that they get this question right. And of course, the new believers are thinking to themselves, we heard the gospel clearly. It's trust in Christ. The gospel is we're sinners and we need salvation from the wrath of God for our sin. So Jesus is our Savior. We trust in him and nothing else. Anything that comes after is a fruit of believing in Christ. It's a response to believing in Christ. It's not what it means to be saved. So they were confused. People were confused. And this teaching rose up and it caused Paul and Barnabas to confront them. They confronted them completely, effectively, but knew that this is a bigger issue. So they went to Jerusalem, counseled together with the leaders at Jerusalem, decided on a clear explanation of the gospel, which was the gospel that had always been preached, and they encouraged uh, a, a group of messengers to go back to Antioch and deliver a statement. The statement was more to do with the things they should practice 
but it was also a statement to say this, this major issue, this central issue of should circumcision be added to Christ, they say, no, we're not adding that burden. That is not the way of salvation. It's faith in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. With that as a bit of a reminder of where we've been, now let's go to the passage, and I will read Acts 15, starting at verse 22. After they had made the declaration, Peter summarized, James declared that we would not burden the Gentiles by adding circumcision. Now we come to verse 22. Follow as I read. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, in Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from, from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from that from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, we are a shaky people at times. We can seem so firm one minute, then we are unsettled the very next. Please strengthen us by your word and spirit as we spend time focusing on this important occasion in the life of the church, where you guided your apostles and elders to provide timeless clarity about the gospel of your grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I had just finished my freshman year of college and I went back to my hometown to work for the summer in a warehouse where many other college students would work for the summer. And uh, many of them were Christian friends of mine. Several of them were relatively new converts to Christianity over the course of the last couple years. So during our lunch breaks, we would have discussions with each other about things related to the faith. There was one student a couple years older than us who had gone away on an exchange program to France for a year during his junior year of college, so he was older. And he was back working for the summer before his senior year. Now, he had been a Christian longer than I was, uh, but when he came back, he had a completely different demeanor. I can tell something had changed about him. It didn't take long till I realized that he had come to believe through some people he had met in France in uh, some kind of a Christian group um, that in order to be sure that you are saved, 
you needed to be baptized by immersion. Um, it wouldn't count if you got baptized before you were professing faith in Christ. Um, it would not count if you were anything less but fully immersed. You needed to be immersed in order to be saved. There was no question about what he was teaching because I asked him many different ways. And just like Paul and Barnabas had no small disagreement, I had no small disagreement with him. And for weeks and weeks, we went on debating this thing during lunch. And it was unsettling people. It was troubling those who were new believers. I could see why they were concerned by what he was saying and how confident he was about it. I mean, by his understanding, Augustine could not be saved. Luther could not be saved. Calvin would not be saved. The Puritans, the Dutch Calvinists, the English Reformers, the Framers, R.C. Sproul would not have been saved, according to him. It seems so silly if you know what the Bible says, but recognize how quickly an unsettledness can come into our spirit when someone comes speaking a different message, troubling words, words that are not in accord with Scripture. You may know they're not, but something still troubles when they come into our midst and they're given uh, the ability to express those ideas and argue for those ideas. This is a bit of a microcosm of what happened in the early church. It was more wide and more profound in the early church, and that's why the occasion before us in Acts 15 unfolds. Basically, you had new believers coming to faith, as I mentioned, in a very difficult cultural place. And the Jewish believers were very faithful. Uh, They introduced people to Christ as they came to Christ. But it soon became apparent that there uh, was something lacking in their minds about the Gentiles. They, They just weren't Jewish enough. They weren't pulling away enough, especially from the Gentile culture. And so some started to teach, you know what? You've got to be circumcised to be a Christian. You, do, you just have to be. You've got to come through Judaism to do this. And by the way, you can imagine them saying, we're not asking you to do all the Jewish rules and rituals that there are. We're just saying you have to enter in by the sign of the covenant as it was in antiquity, circumcision. That's how you can be saved. And people were unsettled. They were troubled by this. It was not the same message the apostles had been preaching. That's for sure. And so after Paul and Barnabas argued with them, They went down to Jerusalem to report what was happening. Because no doubt this would be an issue in other places that had such a strong Greco-Roman push to it. Certainly this uh, was understood by those leaders. And in Acts 15, verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, we're talking about circumcision. That's the main issue in this time. But you could fill in the blank with anything you've probably heard over the years where someone says, yes, believing in Christ, but you must not do this. And they name some activity that's off limits. They won't say it like you're saved if you don't, but they imply that if you don't do this certain thing, in addition to believing in Christ, you might not be saved. So this is not an uncommon thing. It may seem foreign to us talking about this this Jewish ritual of circumcision. But anything added to the gospel is problematic. That's the point. That's why this is so timeless, what is determined here in this council. When they get to Jerusalem, they, as it says in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. The matter was, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? That's the matter. That's what they were dealing with. Verse 7, after there was much debate, Peter stood up and said, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So Peter makes clear once again that all are saved by the same way, the Holy Spirit giving, giving people faith in Christ, and that's how they are saved. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. And he made no distinction between us and them, Peter goes on to say, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So how are they cleansed? By faith. Faith in who? In Christ. Is it by circumcision? No. They're saved, they're cleansed by faith. That's how anybody is ever cleansed, by faith in Christ. And that's what he is emphasizing in their conclusion to the council. Verse 10, now therefore why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And we're going to give them rules. We haven't been keeping the rules ourselves. Rules aren't what save us. Then Peter says in verse 11 of chapter 15, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So a monumental clarifying of what the gospel message is in the council, and then they gather men together so that they can go up to Antioch, or down to Antioch by way of altitude. They move down to Antioch to then spread this message afresh. The same gospel that had been given had now been clarified. Because where there's gospel confusion, there is agitation and unsettledness. But where there's clarity, now you have encouragement and strength. And that was the purpose of sending this team of leaders, key leaders, back to bring clarity by declaring the message of the gospel. Now, you'll notice that a letter was written. And the letter is not the sum total of what the, the council found. The letter was more to verify the ones who came were able to speak the apostolic word. Um, this was a letter of, of credentials, you might say. In it had some pastoral uh, counsel about how the Gentile believers ought to pursue their walk with the Lord. It's settled that you're saved by faith in Christ. That's settled, and the men will tell you that. But there's some other aspects to the way they should pursue their walk now so that they might stay free of gospel confusion. That's what the letter aims to speak to, remembering what the full context is. Notice the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, Greetings. So it's pointed definitely at those who were from the Greek background because there would be some specific counsel for them. And it, notice it comes from a plurality of leaders, uh, not just one voice, key leaders that they all recognized and understood. It was addressed to those who had been shaken by this erroneous teaching. It was not primarily a rebuke, although it has that, but it was really a, a pastoral letter to those who were troubled. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. So he's clearly pointing out, we gave them no instructions. The thing you heard, this, this addition to the gospel, was not something we instructed them concerning. They did this on their own by some observation or some determination of their own, not by the will of God, but by their own der- derivation. So the letter is addressed to give correction about the false notion that had cropped up about the gospel. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, this is reference to the agreement that circumcision does not need to be added, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So we know what was determined. 
they knew it was right to send these men to let them know this clarification. Verse 26, these men, beloved Barnabas and Paul and others, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these are people who have put themselves on the line for this gospel they preach. They're sending a a company of reliable men. You can trust in their word. These are invested men. These are people who believe the gospel unto death. The matter is so important that we're not sending you one, we're not sending you two, we're sending you a group of ambassadors for Christ to confirm and clarify the gospel for you. It's that important. Verse 27, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas. Some commentators will note Judas is a, is a Jewish name and Silas is a Greek name. So perhaps they picked a Jewish believer and a Greek believer along with Paul and Barnabas to come confirm the gospel message. Verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Now he gives a bit of the pastoral advice that comes from the discussion they had back in Jerusalem. Remember the background now. These are new believers who have come out of a a particular culture that weighed heavily on temple worship and temple prostitution. It was a terrible, hideous scene where their temple was there. So they're saved out of that, but there's no doubt there would be a bit of a, a tug or a pullback towards it. Now, some commentators will say the reason this pastoral advice is given is because it would be too hard on the Jews to see them participating in, in some of these activities. I don't think that's the case. It's not just a dietary restriction here. There are many more Jewish dietary restrictions that you remember were lifted with Peter. This has to do with specific ones. Look what, it's, what it says. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. So it's something clearly related and connected to temple worship, idolatry, something that would draw them away from devotion to Christ. Also, and from blood, and from what has been strangled. These are ways in which the sacrificial process would happen in the pagan temples. That's part of the reason God forbid them for Jews, but the main reason is, if you participate in these things, you'll be part of the overall connected, sacrificial, idolatrous culture that will draw you away from trusting in Christ alone and unto superstition. Stay away from that. And the reason why I think this is pretty obvious is the last statement that that this letter warns them of, from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now, what does it have to do with the dietary laws? Because it's connected to the temple prostitution and worship that they would have been tempted by, their old life might have participated in. And so, yes, we want to clarify, you do not need to be circumcised to be saved. But you've got to watch out for some of this stuff over here because this will pull you away from trusting in Christ alone. This will pull you into superstition. This will pull you into something that lays confidence in a false god. So we see why this in connection to the whole of the council says what it says. Very important. Notice verse 29. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. That reads in such a shepherd-like manner. Avoid this. You'll do well. Farewell. So these are people who are writing with love to clarify the gospel and give them warning about something that might draw them away from the gospel. Now, upon reflection of this letter in this passage, I want us to just consider a few things. Uh, The council at Jerusalem in Acts 15 clarified the gospel, and then it provided something else. It provided a clear model for the way church leadership should safeguard the gospel. The main contribution of 
The council is to clarify the gospel for all ages. But it tells us something else when we watch how um, Paul and Barnabas and Silas uh, and all the individuals who are in council, James and Peter, how important it is to get this right for the sake of the church and the people of the church. So we see that unfold as well in this episode. Now, let's consider something as it relates to what happens when we have the gospel wrong. It's on display here. When the gospel message gets corrupted, confusion comes in and it agitates, it it unsettles. Verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us, and notice what it says they did, troubled you with words. Now, we know what their words were. Their words were, you must be circumcised to be saved. It says it explicitly in the council's rendering. Unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. So, what was happening? They were confused about the first message they heard by the addition given by some, and so they were troubled and they were unsettled, and it caused them restlessness. It caused them instability. The gospel clearly preached, we are sinners who deserve God's wrath, and the way to escape God's wrath is by faith in Christ. But then someone comes along and says, and you must. So if they say yes to that being the change, what else will they bring up next? Has to be in the mind. That unsettles. As soon as you add something to the gospel, now it starts to trouble you. Wait a minute. What is true? What is true? Troubled. That just means to be stressed. You were at peace at first. Now you're stressed. You're anxious now. You're worried. Whereas before you had a certain sense of of contentment about God's watch care over you in Christ. They were minds were unsettled. They were restless now. They were fidgety. They were fretful. Peaceful once, now disturbed. Early on in my ministry here at Redeemer, I came to know a woman who had been a pastor's wife for 50 years. 50 years. I heard many uh, wonderful stories about their ministry over the years and uh, talking about uh, preaching the gospel. And there's no question, I mean, the gospel they were preaching was you trust in Christ for salvation alone. That was the gospel they definitely were saying. Um, her husband died, and she had been, lived 10 more years. Um, so this is a woman who had been part of a gospel ministry for 50 years, and then 10 years after that, connected to several churches in the area. I knew her through a member of our church. She was very sick, close to dying, and I had occasion to talk with her and meet with her, me and a few other people. And I was staggered by how insecure she was about what would happen next for her. 50 years under gospel ministry... But she said to us that she was just worried that God wouldn't accept her when she died. I believe in Jesus, but you know, I've done this wrong or I've done that wrong. And I assure you, it wasn't that wrong in the sense of compared to what you might think someone would lay out as a confession. Certainly wrong enough, but she's in Christ, right? She trusts in Jesus. It's in Christ that she goes to meet God. That's what should be giving her um, settledness. But she was part of a denomination that taught you could lose your salvation. Yes, you trust in Jesus, but if you get into this too much or do this or fall off the wagon here, or you might not be saved or you might lose your salvation. And they literally, in their doctrinal statement, talked about ways in which a person might actually lose it. No, it doesn't at all relate logically with what they're saying the gospel is, but 
Thousands of people who are genuine Christians think this. They're unsettled. They're troubled in their minds because of erroneous teaching, because of confusion about the gospel. Because here's the real reality of it, and you know it as well as I do. If you could lose your salvation, you would absolutely. I mean, if it was any possibility that you could go to hell, you would. I would. We would. We know that's true. I'll wipe away any religious uh, veneer or any outward trappings or anything someone told you about how good you are. You know it like I know it. We could not go to heaven on any basis of our having to keep it. And so this is the fullness of the gospel that expresses that reality. And when that gets messed up, unsettledness and trouble comes into our minds. And that's what we see happening. Calvin uh, described these people, uh, the some persons who have gone, from, uh, uh, gone out from us and troubled you with, our wor- with your, their words. Calvin said, they troubled the church and subverted souls. And he's right about that. That's not too extreme. Now, when confusion about the gospel comes, there is agitation and there is unsettledness and trouble. But when clarity about the gospel comes now, clarity, when it becomes confirmed again what it is, it is inevitable that it will bring encouragement and strength. That's why we need so many touch points with the proclamation of the truth of the gospel. And so in this process, they're able to clarify it and reaffirm it and it brings encouragement to those who were previously troubled and unsettled. Verse 30, look at the passage with me. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Now you know they were there to tell them the whole of what the council spoke of. Verse 31, and when they had read it, what did they do as a result of having it clarified? They rejoiced because of its encouragement. They were discouraged when they heard you could add something or change something or someone could come along and add something to the gospel because they knew that's no gospel at all. Common sense told them that. There's no more security if you're saying that the apostolic gospel is not enough, that Jesus' good news is not enough. So to hear that, no, it was enough, they rejoice at its encouragement because it settles them once again. It settles down their restless minds. It takes away the peril of what they were looking forward to. They were able to rest again in Christ. Verse 32, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. The gospel clarified sets the foundation for encouragement and for strengthening, strengthening for what will come in this life for all of us in many ways. Now, before I go further, I want to speak to something that relates to uh, this need for regular gospel clarity. I promised myself that I would never apologize to any of you for clarifying the gospel too much. Now, I'm not saying anyone's complaining to me about that, but I do think that we should appreciate and be honest about how quick our minds get confused about the truth. Why is this the case? Why are we so easily confused about the clarity of the gospel message? Why is it that we should meet regularly like we do on the Lord's Day especially so that we could be reminded of the gospel and the full counsel of God's word which is built upon the foundation of the gospel? Why do we need this so regularly, at least once a week as far as congregationally is concerned? Well, I think there are two things I would point out. There may be more. But just thinking about personally what I experience myself and what in talking with people I gather are the reasons we become confused and lose gospel clarity so quickly. The first thing is, 
The gospel itself is not natural to our way of thinking and living. The idea that we are helpless, that we are completely dependent upon, upon God borning us again so that we can even trust in Christ, so that we can be saved from his wrath, so that we can live eternally, all of that, we like a bit of it, but not all of it. See, the part about it that I don't do anything or can't do anything, I don't much like. I don't think it's accurate in my natural way of thinking. I've got something to give. Yeah, sure, you do 95%, Lord. I'll even give you 99, but you know, there's still a little bit I do. And I just got this thing in me that wants to be independent, that wants to say I have some merit. I can contribute something. I think we all struggle against that. Our default is to go to works, to, Lord, look at what I'm doing. Love me more because I do this or I do that or I do the other. And when we hear the gospel afresh, and it's all of him, it's all of what he does, and anything we do, it's actually a fruit of the work of God in us, there could be this moment where we just think, That's just, that can't be it. That's just too easy. That's not enough. We should be doing this, or we should be doing that. And we always look for something else, and we put it in the category of merit, that if I trust in Jesus, I'm a believer, but now I do this, this, and this, and God will love me more, or he'll bless me more. Now, don't get me wrong. When we obey God, there are blessings that come with that. But obedience is actually an outflow of a proper understanding of God's grace. So even obedience is a work of God's grace. Justification is an act of God's grace to make us born again. Sanctification, the process of growth where we're learning to obey more and more, that's the work of God's grace. Even the work is to be given, he's to be given credit for it. I think that's unnatural for us to appreciate. So we can at times, especially if we're not being reacquainted with the gospel on a regular basis, we will naturally tend towards, you know what, I'm not that bad. I'm okay. And boy, look at the world. I'm so much better than them. And we start to think by default we're okay. And we become confused about what's, how we are made right with God, and that will trouble you. Eventually, you'll wake up to it, and you'll be terrified, rightfully so, because there's no security in your works. That's one thing. That may be something that speaks to us in the church more. But I think as you and I have friends in the world and we are interacting on all the various levels the Lord has called us to and the ways we should to, to bring Christ wherever we are, we have to be honest that sometimes we listen to people in the world with the way they talk about their satisfaction or the things they're pursuing, and they look happy enough. They look like it's okay enough. I mean, we're in a seriously polished area. I mean, it's, it's polished. Like it, on the surface, it seems like people are doing all right without talking about Jesus. They're not born again, but they don't seem to be bad people. And, 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 you know, they seem to be pursuing things that gives them purpose and meaning. And so, what about my relationship with God? I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about what's going on in life. And I think a lot of people in modern culture are just busied with things that are, they're doing. I do think underneath it, everybody gnaws about in some way about what their purpose is in the universe. How are they right with God? But the world's got so much stuff. and We have so many things, activities and things to enjoy that we can busy ourselves and not actually rise above that to ask a, a question that's beyond the superficial. And we live in a superficial realm. And you, as a Christian, think to yourself, do they think deeper about this stuff? I mean, they're so busy, they seem so happy, they have so much things. But do they ever think about eternity? Do they ever think of how short this life is? And, and it doesn't seem like they are thinking about it. And they're acting like, why are you bothering to think about it? And culturally, there's a confusion that comes that we don't even need the gospel because things are okay. You know, they're, they're, they're generally all right. And the world seems to live that way. And Christians get 
get pushed around by that at times. If they don't have regular contact with the gospel, you could forget how much we need it. Now, I don't think that lasts long. I think life is so laden with troubles and so many hardships that will touch every one of us, uh, in the world and in the church, um, that you can't really avoid going deep at times. But I do think that we live in a place where it could be very possible for someone to have a mixed message or understanding about why there even needs to be good news. They don't think there's bad news, the bad news of our sin. Steady doses of the world's message or lifestyle can cause us to forget the gospel itself. And interestingly, you actually get more depressed like that when you never address the deeper issues of life. In the quietness of your, of your heart and the quietness of your loneliness at times, you ask yourselves those ultimate questions. And the gospel is the only thing that has an answer for it. I think those may be some reasons why we need regular gospel clarity, and that's what we have here. Verse 31, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Um, they con- congregated in order to hear and be reminded again of the gospel. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Encouraged here is not just an emotional response to something that's true. It's an assurance. It's a confirming. It's a shoring up of that which you know to be true. Strengthening has to do with making one stronger so as to be able to stand up against the waves of life. The problem with the superficiality of the culture in its way of handling problems is when problems come, people are devastated by it. And it's tough enough as a Christian with all the things that happen in this fallen world to not have Christ, to not know eternal answers would be all the more damaging and destructive. And so we have this in the gospel, and this is why they rejoice and bring and are encouraged by what is said. The big reason why we come together in the Lord's Day every week, brothers and sisters, is to be reminded of the gospel again, to be clarified again, because we need it on a regular basis. The last point I want to make to you is one that is pretty self-evident by what's happening on the part of the leaders of the church, but it does encourage me and the other leaders of the church and you as members of the church to to require this of leadership, that leaders are careful to provide gospel clarity all the time, to consistently draw us back to what it is that makes us right with God, because that understanding fuels everything else we do. In the passage, in verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men among them, to send them to Antioch. To do what? To bring this message, to safeguard this message, to bring clarity about the gospel. You know, after this episode in the, the council at Jerusalem, um, the apostle Paul writes his first epistle, and he writes it to the churches that he first visited on the missionary journey we covered in Acts 14, 13 into 14. The churches in Galatia. There are multiple churches. It was the letter to the Galatians. Now, do you think Paul was very zealous for clarity about the gospel? I know you think so. It's what it says, right? We know Paul and his personality. So what would his first letter be like? It, the same problem happens in Galatia. By the way, it's the same problem that happens in every church in history is things get added to the gospel. And so he writes to the Galatians in his first letter. Uh, listen to how he puts it. The beginning is kind of soft and pastoral, but it has some real depth to it on purpose. Listen to what he says to the Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's establishing his authority as being from Christ. From God the Father who raised him, Christ, from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the, church, the churches of Galatia. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a quick gospel message. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from, this present, from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Period. That intro is important because he's laying out the simplicity of the gospel again, how we've been saved. The problem was in Galatia, they were saying you have to be circumcised to be saved. Very next sentence after this packed intro. Listen to what Paul says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He didn't say, you know, guys, I got to talk to you about you're a little messed up in this point. You're not quite getting it. No, no. I'm shocked that you're abandoning the gospel. That catches the attentions, I'm sure, of the, the, the leaders of the church. And then he says something further. Turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That word trouble appears again. It's a beautiful example of Paul's zeal, and it's a picture to all leaders of the church about our zealousness for the gospel. Later in, in Galatians 3, you'd think he might soften up as the letter went along, but in chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Did you receive the Spirit of God because you were obedient or because of faith? And faith itself is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to correct them or working to correct them. One other reference from Paul that reminds us leaders of the importance of safeguarding the gospel. He's at Ephesus in a second missionary journey, which we'll get to in a few chapters. And he's ready to leave, and he leans back to the elders who who will be there permanently. He's a missionary, brings the gospel, helps train them. Now he's going to go, and he says something in particular to the elders. Listen to what he says in Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock, elders, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. What does care look like? Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So a recurring theme in the New Testament is for the leaders of the church to know the gospel and protect the gospel so that the people of God could be fed and could grow and could be strengthened, strengthened for that which will come. It will come in this life in many fashions. Only the gospel and the eternal truth of our stability in Christ forever will help us with all the changing sands that happen during our days. I close with a statement from Derek Thomas, this great uh, modern Bible teacher who said this, the gospel is always worth defending. Indeed, when it is threatened, it must be defended no matter what the cost. Not every dispute threatens to undo the core of Christianity itself. But the issue before the council of Jerusalem, the gospel itself, did just that. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your eternal word. We are grateful for your spirit's ministry through your word. I pray that you would encourage the brethren here gathered once again in the clarity of the gospel, that they may be encouraged 
and strengthen because they know they are secure in Christ and Him alone. They know they can't mess it up, that they are only to rely and lean upon you, which even that reliance is a gift of your grace. Lord, it humbles us to see what you have done. It compels us to want to serve you, to obey you, to live for you. Not to earn it, but to manifest your manifold grace so others would see and believe. Lord, guard us from confusion about the gospel. Guard this church. Guard the flock here, each individual believer, that they might be strong in their confidence in Christ. And I pray for our leadership, that you would give us zeal for the gospel, that you would give us a careful stewardship of the clarity of the gospel preached here and lived out here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.